Well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, or if they're already open in John chapter 5, we're going to read again from verses 30 to 47. So just to catch you up, um, Jesus has, as we had in our first reading, Jesus heals the lame man. He's then accused of making himself equal with God um, by, um, by doing God's work on the Sabbath. In, the, in verses 19 to 29, Jesus then expands on what that means, that as God, he gives life and he judges. And now he comes to give a defense. He comes to give the, uh, the evidence, the backup for what he has just claimed. So John chapter 5 from verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one in whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Well, I don't know how you feel about flying. Um, I was just away um, down on the mainland this past week for a conference, um, and I flew back on a Friday. And often when I'm on the plane, I think about how amazing it is that planes can actually fly. Here are these objects that are uh, heavier than air, not like a balloon, um, and yet they fly. The wings are held on just by a bunch of bolts and rivets, which is quite unnerving. And if something goes wrong, you can't just calmly file out of the exit. Um, and everyone's okay. You'll be unsurprised that when I turn in my seat and say all these things to my wife, Helen, um, she reminds me that I've got a terrible inside voice and uh, to keep it down, otherwise I'm going to upset the other passengers. But I want, yeah, how do you guys feel about flying? You might be terrified at the very thought um, and everything I've said has just confirmed why you think that you're never going to get on a plane. Um, maybe you're someone who's willing to fly, but throughout the whole journey you um, grip your seat with white knuckles and every jolt and every bounce in the turbulence makes you think that maybe you've made the wrong decision. Or maybe you love flying. Um, maybe the plane food is the best part of the holiday and it's, you can't wait to get on the next flight. How you feel about getting on a plane 
will be closely related to how confident you are that it's safe um, and how confident you are that it's a good idea. And you know, it's a bit like that with Jesus. In this room and um, listening online, there'll be a whole range of people. Some of you have never gotten on the plane, if I can put it that way. You might be thinking about Jesus for the first time. You might have grown up in a Christian home and you decided, actually, I want nothing to do with Jesus anymore. Or maybe you're interested, um, but you're just too terrified to actually get onto that plane. There are also those who have got on the plane, who are trusting in Jesus. And, that, and how we feel on that plane, well, there'll be a whole range. Some of us will be the white knuckle riders with every turbulence, bit of turbulence in life. Makes us wonder, have I really made the right decision following Jesus? And there'll be others who are having a great time. And right now, the Christian life feels like the best thing ever. The chances most of us fluctuate uh, between those two. And you see, when it comes to Jesus, we need the same thing as the person who's flying. We need confidence. We need to be sure that believing in him and following him is a good idea. And that might be a confidence to start following Jesus for the first time. That might be confidence to keep growing and going in our trust in Jesus. And the great thing is that Jesus wants us to have that confidence too. He doesn't ask us to blindly jump on board the Christian life. Rather, he gives us evidence so that we can trust that the plane is safe, if I can put it that way, that it's the right decision. And the whole of John's gospel, in many ways, is a book of evidence about Jesus. Uh, at the very last chapter of John, John chapter 20, second to last actually, um, John tells us the purpose for which he's writing. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presences of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John is saying, look, I've made a whole stack of evidence for who Jesus is so that you can analyze it, you can work through it, and you can have confidence to believe who Jesus says he is. And John chapter 5, which we read, the latter part of John chapter 5, is the place where, as it were, the evidence gets laid out before the jury. Um, chapter 5, as we said, began with Jesus healing the lame man. Tensions then quickly arose as it became clear that Jesus was claiming to do the work of God and so was claiming to be God. And now Jesus is giving a defense, or at least it seems that way. It seems that now as if Jesus is on trial and he's giving evidence to show who he is. And with Jesus on trial, you might, you might say that the faith of Christianity is on trial. It stands and falls on whether Jesus really is God as he claims to be. And so out come the witnesses. Can we really be confident about Jesus? Our first point then is the voice of the witnesses. Let's work through them um, in the passage that we just read. The first witness that Jesus calls, you notice, is John the Baptist. So in verse 33, Jesus says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. I don't know if you've read John's gospel before, you know that um, John the Baptist appears in chapter 1. He's the one that is spoken of as God's messenger who prepares the way of the Lord. Um, and John came, we're told, as a witness to the light so that all might believe. And that's exactly what John did. From the very moment that John um, set out in his ministry, 
Everything he was doing was saying, get ready for the king. Get ready for the one who's coming. Get ready for Jesus. You might say that John was almost born in the witness box, as it were. His life, his goal, um, his whole purpose in getting up in the morning was to point to Jesus. He was like a spotlight saying, look at Jesus. And that's what he did. When Jesus comes on the scene, um, at chapter 129, um, John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John gave a, a true testimony of Jesus. And you might say that for the people there at the time, John was one of the most um, authoritative figures that you could quote. So Jesus was saying, John says, I'm the Christ. John says, I'm the Son of God. You can trust his witness. But what's interesting is that Jesus gives the witnesses. Jesus um, calls up on John's witness, as it were, not for his sake, but for those who are listening. Jesus doesn't have a fragile ego or is unsure about his identity and he needs to back it up with other people. Jesus is perfectly confident that he is the Son of God. Rather, we, he says in verse 34, he says, Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. Jesus isn't um, standing in the, um, in the, I don't know, in the, court, in the courtroom and he's calling these witnesses because he's worried he's going to be discredited. He's calling these witnesses to prove to the jury, to prove to the, everyone watching, to convince them that he is the son of God. It's not like me claiming to have run, I don't know, 5K in 15 minutes and I say, ask Thomas, he was there uh, because I'm worried that you think I'm a liar. Jesus is saying, it's not for his sake, it's for us. He's saying, I'm saying these things so that you might be saved. But the testimony that Jesus has is greater than John. If you read from verse 36, Jesus says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So we've had the witness of John the Baptist. Second witness is the works of the Son. And Jesus' works are a big theme in John's Gospel. And while there are lots of events that we heard didn't make the cut, John says there are lots of um, things that I didn't include, John carefully records at least seven signs um, that point to Jesus being the Son of God. And in verse 36, Jesus says, The works I'm doing bear witness. Um, in other words, these aren't party tricks, and nor are Jesus' works simply acts of compassion. They are that, but we can often reduce it to that. They're signposts. They are signs with a message. So you know, like, there's a, the road sign that has a man uh, looking like he is digging in a pile of dirt, or some people say it looks like someone opening an umbrella. Uh, you see that sign, and you know what it means. Or oh, if you've done your driving theory test, at least. It means man at work. Well, you've got to imagine, every time Jesus does a, um, a miracle, or a sign, as John calls it in his gospel, there's, another, there's a road sign, and it's saying God at work. We see these things that Jesus did and we're, does, and we're supposed to think, this is God at work. God is acting. Um, if you, to look up um, earlier on in the passage, in chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus tells us a little bit about the work of God. He says, um, verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to all he will. So part of God's work is giving life. No one can give life except for God. He created everything from nothing. He can raise from the dead. God is the giver of life. 
But what we see peppered throughout John's gospel is that Jesus also gives life. And so we should start starting to make an equation there. God gives life. Jesus is giving life. What does that say about who Jesus is? So, for example, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus says um, there's, uh, the official son has died. And Jesus, just with a word, says your son will live. In chapter 4, verse 50. Even in, in the chat passage we read, you might say the paralyzed man who was um, paralyzed for 38 years, he was probably as good as dead in the eyes of society. And yet Jesus, just with a word, said, get up, pick up your mat. Later on in um, chapter 6, Jesus, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, um, he will say, um, he'll announce that he is the bread of life. In other words, <laughs> life, all the sustenance for living comes from him. Later on, as he raises Lazarus from the dead, um, he'll once again demonstrate that he gives life. Ultimately, of course, Jesus himself will rise from the dead. And again and again, Jesus' works throughout his gospel show that he is the life-giving Son of God. It's got to work all the way through. So we've got the witness of John the Baptist. We've got the witness of Jesus' words. And third, we see the third witness is the word of the Father. Not only does Jesus do the works of the Father, but verse 37, Jesus says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. How has the Father borne witness? Now, um, Jesus could be referring to his baptism, where the Father speaks from heaven and say, that says, This is my Son, in whom I love, um, who I love, um, in, with whom I'm well pleased. Um, but if you flick back to John chapter 1, or if you look in your own time, that's not actually an event that John records. That's not one of the um, signs. John doesn't choose to include that in his gospel. So it's more likely that John is referring to something else. And I think if we go down um, to verse 39, we see what John is referring to. He talks about how um, it's through the scriptures that bear witness about Jesus. In other words, God has spoken and everyone has heard it. God has spoken for hundreds of years through his word. So the scriptures bear witness about Jesus. And by the scriptures, Jesus um, is referring to what we have as the Old Testament. So the history books, the prophets, uh, the Psalms, wisdom literature. What I find amazing though is that Jesus doesn't just pick a few specific verses and say, this bit's about me and that bit's about me and this, you know, Isaiah 53, whatever we might come to mind. Rather, Jesus makes a general statement that all scriptures bear witness about him. And that should make us sit up. Because in some ways, Jesus is giving us the key to understanding the Old Testament and by extension the New. He's saying that you can't understand the Bible without Jesus. Let me just illustrate what I mean. Now, I don't know much about art at all. Um, there's probably people here who can... Uh, rattle off all the different artists and understand all the different periods of art um, I don't really know much about art but the few museums I've been to or art galleries rather um, with my family I always noticed the, um, the paintings that were depictions of things from the Bible because um, I could recognise what it was about rather than the modern art which I didn't really get and often you get these big canvases, big frescoes uh, of, the, of the crucifixion and there's a lot going on there, you might have uh, Mary there weeping, the centurion looking up at Jesus, the disciples running away, the soldiers casting lots. But you can be sure that at the centre of every single one of those pieces is Jesus on the cross. 
And we can tell it's at the centre. Sometimes the artists have everyone either looking towards him or away. And if you got, um, if you wanted to destroy art and you either cut out um, Jesus from the cross or whitewashed it away, you would still be left with a lot of detail, probably a lot of very interesting things to study in the picture. But the painting wouldn't make sense if you cut out Jesus. Because he's central to understanding what's happening. Without Jesus, the picture is not complete. And the same is true with the grand narrative of the Bible. While not every single sentence and passage specifically says something about Jesus, he's the focal point of the whole story of redemption across the Bible. You can't make sense of the Bible without Jesus. And we could spend ages talking about how the Exodus um, looks forward to the rescue that Jesus brings, how the law of God that, um, that God gives to his people that expresses the heart of God. And we see that ultimately in the life and character of Jesus. Or, or the kings, both good and bad, are all, all point towards the greater king that we need. We need a king that's better than the bad ones and better than the good ones. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the linchpin. He's the fulcrum. He's at the center to understanding the Bible. But Jesus isn't just giving a lesson of how to understand the Bible in verse 39. Rather, he's saying that God has been speaking from the witness stand for hundreds of years. The fact, why, by speaking of how the scriptures point to him, he says, you know, you, God has been speaking. You just haven't been listening in many ways. God has been saying again and again through all the prophets, through all the history books, for everything, that the Son of God is coming and this is what he's like. And I think that's a good thing for us to remember because God has spoken so that we might believe and that we might have confidence in our belief. And we all do need confidence, don't we? I don't know whether um, some of you, I don't know you all, so I can say this whether, you, uh, whether you're listening online or here in person, that you might have grown up in a Christian home and you might be thinking, does my parents' faith or my grandparents' faith actually have anything to do with me? Is there any grounding in what they believe? Is it really worth me believing this for myself? Well, if Jesus, if Christianity, if the claims of Jesus are just a myth, then you're wasting your time being a Christian. If it's a myth, then you're better off running away. You'd be the biggest fool uh, to devote your life to Jesus if he isn't God. But you'd also be the biggest fool for walking away if he is. And greater than that, if you don't even look at the evidence, if you don't even examine who Jesus is, then you'd be more foolish even still. Many of us, though, have are following Jesus. I know that. We need to go over the evidence as well, though. Because in the Christian life, we can grow tired. We can grow, um, we, can, we can struggle as we go through the Christian life and we can doubt, we can wonder whether the Jesus that we put our trust in in the first place, whether maybe we made the wrong decision, whether it's all a bit too much. Is, what I, is the profession I made years ago, is that worth it? Is there any grounds for what I believe? And we can doubt and we can worry and we need to be also sure about what we believe. We need our Saviour's reminder in many ways that the evidence is there, that all the witnesses do speak with one voice. 
And we can look at the Bible. We can see that from Genesis to Revelation, everything points to Christ. And that should encourage us. When God says to Eve that her great-great-great-grandson is going to come and crush the head of the serpent, we can think that's God testifying in the witness box about Jesus coming. When God promises to Abraham that he'll make him into a great nation and that through his, through his offspring all nations will be blessed, that's God testifying from the witness box about Jesus' coming. And you could keep going when God promises to David that he's going to um, raise up a forever king from his line who will rule from David's throne forever. Again, that's God speaking about Jesus. Jesus isn't a man who appeared from nowhere. He's, should be, he's the long-expected Messiah, the long-promised Messiah. All history culminates in him. And we can look at his life. We can look at his works. We can see the blind being given sight. We can see the dead being raised. And they're all signposts that say God of work. We can have confidence of who Jesus is. It's, in many ways, you might say that belief is only the, the only wise response to the evidence, to the witnesses that we're given. For those of us who do believe as well, I think we can have confidence that the Bible, we can use the Bible to point others to Christ. It's sometimes we can easy to think, well, how on earth do I convince people who Jesus is? I, I know who Jesus is. I'm following him. I've trusted in him. But what do I hold out to other people? Well, can I encourage you to hold out his word, to read a gospel with someone, to encourage them? If they say, well, I don't know where to start, encourage them to read John's gospel or Mark's gospel or, or another of those gospel accounts. Because those are evidence books, as it were. Eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is, written so that we might believe. And God's word is powerful. It's living and active. It speaks, it changes hearts, far beyond any of our imagination or our hopes. So it's a confidence to hold out the witnesses. Jesus lists the witnesses so that we might believe. Let's give the witnesses to others that they might believe. So we've seen that Jesus has listed the witnesses there irrefutable you might say but tragically that doesn't mean that everyone will believe the question though is what does jesus think of that we're on to our second point we've had we've looked at the voice of the witnesses our second point is the verdict of the son and jesus mentions people's unbelief and rejection of him quite a lot in this passage um, i'll just dot through a few verses and you can see it for yourself so for example in verse 38 jesus says that you do not have his word abiding in you. You do not believe in the one whom he has sent. Verse 40, he says, you refuse to come to me. Verse 43, he says, you do not receive me. And we can know all that already in some ways. Because from verse 18, they've been planning to kill him. Obviously, they don't believe. Obviously, they have rejected Jesus. But why? Why do people not believe in Jesus? Why do people reject Jesus? You know, ever since chapter 1, in some ways, um, of John, that's been happening. You can ask, why, as John says, when Jesus came to his own, did his own not receive him? Why didn't the religious elite of all people fail to believe in Jesus? Surely they, surely they who knew their Bibles best, should be the first to trust in Jesus. We could broaden this question. Why, if there's such a powerful witness to Jesus, do all the smart people in the world not believe? You know, why did my friend's professor stand up 
um, back when they were in university, and in front of the class ridicule Christians and say, you'd have to be stupid to believe that Jesus was God. Why, did, why do internationally acclaimed historians and Bible scholars call into question and rubbish Jesus' claims? Is it that there is insufficient witness? Is it that they've understood something else that we've not? Is it that I'm just a gullible fool who has taken all this at Jesus' word? Are we, are we foolish to believe? Well, throughout this passage, Jesus has given his verdict. And that is that unbelief isn't wisdom. It's folly. Jesus says that people don't believe because of lack of witness, but because they don't listen. Let me just go through the witnesses again and I'll show and we can see that. So take John the Baptist um, in verse 35. Again, Jesus says he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. However, the problem is that's all they did. You see, the religious leaders were really happy with the religious enthusiasm that John brought as he told everyone to get ready for the Messiah. But when the Messiah actually came, they refused to look at him. They refused to come to him. Unbelief isn't the smart or wise thing to do. It's folly. In some ways, the religious leaders are like someone who'd go to Lou's Castle at night and they spend three hours examining the floodlights and taking pictures of them and but fail to look at where they point. It'd be folly. Likewise, Jesus' works in chapter 5, um, the religious leaders completely missed that. You know, there is a man who has been an invalid for 38 years, who has just hopped up in his walking. And their response isn't to go, wow, this is something that is really out of the ordinary. God must be at work. Their response is, let's kill Jesus, because he's claiming to be God. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus gives life. They're planning to take it away. But the strength of the witnesses increases, doesn't it? Um, As the strength of the witnesses increases, the condemnation also uh, increases. So when we get to the Father's word, God's testimony through Scripture, notice what Jesus says. In verse 39, he says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Some of these religious leaders, like the Pharisees, would have known the entire Old Testament. They wouldn't have just known it. They would have memorized it. Which is, I mean, they would have memorized, I think I heard, the Torah by the time they were age 12. Uh, that first five books of the Bible and the entirety of the Bible by the time they're, the Old Testament by the time they're 18. That is pretty astounding. They could know the Bible back to front. And yet they missed that it was talking about Jesus. And they particularly loved Moses. Moses is the hero of the Old Testament. If you think, I mean, Moses would be like the equivalent of a kid's uh, Avengers character. Um, I don't know, kids might have on their t-shirt, Captain America or something like that. The religious leaders had Moses on their t-shirt. He was their hero. They all loved Moses. And so it's pretty damning when Jesus' condemnation comes in verse 45. He says to them, you do not think that I'm going to be the one accusing you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his words, how will you believe my words? That's the condemnation, he's cutting right into the thing they most believe. They hold Moses up there. 
and yet they refuse to look where Moses points. In some ways, their folly is like a boy who gets a note from a girl that says, meet me at, I don't know, Dalmore uh, at this time, at this place. And he gets the note and maybe he photographs it, he smells it and he holds it close to his heart. But then he doesn't go. That would just be foolish, wouldn't it? But that's what they were like. They had been absolutely devoted to the scriptures, but they refused to look where it points. They refused to do what it said. And there are people who will devote their entire careers to studying the Bible, who are fluent in the biblical languages, who write commentaries that are so often very helpful, but they refuse to come to Jesus. Um, when my wife was in, um, in Glasgow, she was actually studying theology, and she um, mentioned at one point in class that the Bible is the word of God. And her lecturer said, oh, you must be one of those fundamentalist youths. You know, because there are many people who will know the Bible really well, but they'll completely disregard Jesus, not because the evidence isn't there for Jesus, but because while having their head in the scriptures, they fail to see Jesus at that center of the painting. It's like it's whitewashed out. It's like he's cut out. It could be easy to think about, well, it could be easy to let that kind of thing shake our faith and to think, well, maybe, maybe the evidence has just crumbled under their cross-examination. Maybe as they have looked at the evidence for the resurrection and who Jesus is, they've seen something that we haven't. But Jesus says no, like the religious leaders. They're just blind to see where the evidence points. It's not lack of evidence, it's lack of listening. This passage began looking like Jesus was on trial, didn't it? That for, being, for claiming to be God. However, as it becomes clear that Jesus, as the passage goes on, it becomes clear that it's not Jesus who's on trial, but rather everyone who's standing there. It's, on, it's us. And the witnesses Jesus calls don't just testify that he is the Son of God. They testify against Jesus' opponents and against everyone who doesn't believe. You see, it's very easy to come to the Bible. Um, it's, it's, good, it's good to come to the Bible and to ask who Jesus is. But we have to be careful as well with that question. Because as we put Jesus on trial, as we put him in the dock and say, prove it. Actually, C.S. Lewis wisely warns, the real question is not, what are we to make of Christ? But what is he to make of us? He says, us cross-examining Jesus is like a fly sitting on an elephant's head, wondering what he's going to make of the elephant. For it's not God in the dock, but all who oppose him. So let me ask, what does God make of you? I wonder if you've ever asked that question. Imagine there are some here who, or listening who haven't believed in Jesus yet. You probably wouldn't call yourself Jesus' opponents though. But notice that Jesus doesn't make that distinction. In this passage, everyone who doesn't listen to the witness is described as rejecting Jesus. So you can see in verse 38, for example, Jesus says, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. Or verse 42, Jesus says, um, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Jesus is very black and white. If you don't listen to the witnesses, and you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then Jesus says you've rejected him, and you've rejected God. 
However, Jesus has come so that we might believe. He has called up the witnesses for our benefit so that we might have confidence. And so if you do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you have listened to the witnesses, then you could turn the statements in verses 38 and 42 around. Because Jesus would say, if you have believed, you do have the word of God dwelling in you. And if you have received him, then you do have the love of God in you. There can be a lot of misunderstanding what makes someone a Christian. Uh, We can add things. I've heard very easily people adding things that we have to have some certain experience to be a Christian. Or you have to have lived a certain life to be a Christian. Well, Jesus just cuts through that. It's very simple in fact. Jesus is wonderfully clear. It's whoever believes in him. And you can see that if you just um, look up earlier on in chapter 5 verse 24. That verse I read as we started the service. Jesus says truly truly I say to you. When he says truly truly that means he's saying listen up this is important. Truly truly I say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. We can hear the witnesses. They're laid out in front of us. We can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you do believe, you will have eternal life. You know, like passengers on the plane, some of us will spend parts or even uh, parts of the Christian life gripping on and wondering if we've made the wrong decision. And we can go through ups and downs, doubting if what we believe is true. And our faith can get shaken, like there's turbulence on a plane. But the point is, you're still on the plane. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're on the plane, you've received him, you have life. That should encourage us. And Jesus has given us this evidence, not just so that we can believe for the first time, but so that we can be strengthened in our belief. Jesus doesn't want us to go through the Christian life lacking assurance and gripping hold with white knuckles. He wants us to have confidence in who he is, confidence where we stand, confidence in God, confidence to hold out Jesus to other people. And so he's given us this witness. So I can encourage you to hold on to it, um, to hold it out. We've seen Jesus' verdict to those who um, reject him. But I just want to close. If we were to ask, what is Jesus? What does God think of you? What is Jesus' verdict of those who believe? Well, once again, it's there in verse 24. Jesus' verdict is that whoever hears his word and believes him who sent me. The verdict that Jesus passes in your life, in your death, the verdict that Jesus passes as you stand before him, having died, is that you have eternal life. Is that you do not pass into judgment, but pass from death to life. That's a wonderful promise to hold on to. That's a wonderful confidence that we can have that Jesus gives us. So may God build us up in that. May God help us to hold on to his word and to take hope in in Christ as we believe and go from strength to strength in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken in your word. And Lord, we thank you that you have spoken so that we may have life. And we pray that even now you will be Um, by your word, breathing life into our hearts. You'd be exciting us to want to know you more. You'd be strengthening us um, to have confidence and assurance in the God in whom we believe. 
And we pray that you'd be lifting our eyes to heaven. That our confidence, remembering that our confidence isn't in ourselves, but in Christ who has done everything that we might have eternal life in him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.